This podcast is brought to you by Pragmatic Solutions, the leading iGaming PAM platform with a modular approach, including many benefits like a fast, secure, and scalable API-based platform integrated with all major third-party products and services. Make sure you head over to Pragmatic Solutions and join our smart thinking. For the iGaming Next podcast live, please welcome to the stage the co-founder and managing director of iGaming Next, Pierre Lint, and his very special guest, the director of Willow Park Capital, Gavin Hamilton. Please welcome on. Thank you. I don't even have a surprise today. Feel free to have a seat, uh, Gavin. I told you we had a surprise for you here today. How come, what's the love for this song come from? I had so many comments before in the preparation for this uh, session that uh, you have played this song on repeat at a previous conference. How, how, what uh, was the background? It's kind of a long story. I don't know if anyone's ever seen Belfast. The, anyway, it's, there's a part where uh, Jamie Dornan sings this and Jamie Dornan's just gorgeous. A gorgeous Irish man like myself, so. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, so, Gavin Hamilton, I'm very excited to uh, have you here today, of course. You are the former CEO of Red Tiger, uh, former COO of NetDent, commercial director of uh, Evolution, and now, of course, you started uh, Willow Park Capital to, uh, to start some interesting products uh, here. But I also know that you are a bit of a mystic in the industry. You're one of the, one of the guys that are really good at uh, making predictions in the industry. And we like that here at IGM Next, of course. And so in the preparation for uh, this podcast, you talked about the five predictions about the industry that you laid out in 2015, uh, in a board meeting with your former company here. Can you first of all talk about what those five predictions were back in 2015? Yeah, sure. So uh, I was telling Pierre that. Uh, when Paddy Power Betfair emerged, Breen asked us to present to the board about what the future of gambling would look like in 2020. Uh, and actually, on the board at the time was Peter Jackson, who's the now CEO. So I'm sure he still has the notes from the session. But um, but I, I won't I won't go into to all five. But two two of the big ones that stuck out for me at the time were um, uh, at the at the time live casino was about nine ten percent of Paddy Power's revenue, and it was only about 20 percent mobile at the time. Uh, and it seemed at the time that it was just inevitable that the live casino space would continue to grow. And as we sit here now and look back at it, it, it seems fairly self-evident. Seems but, but at the time, um, at the time, there's this common consensus that it would never work on mobile. Nobody would ever sit there on a mobile device and play uh, on, a, on a live theater studio. And I think what, what was obvious at the time is mobile phone screens were getting larger, batteries were getting longer or faster to charge. Um, you had better storage on devices, so large apps were, it was, it wasn't just going to block up your whole storage on your device. Uh, and it just seemed inevitable that the, the whole live casino space was just going to explode. And I think at, you know, the, the evolution share price since then was a big thing. Yep. Uh, it, it, the growth of that it kind of seems obvious now, but at the time, it, 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 you'd be surprised at how many people back then thought that live casino could never work on mobile and it was going to be only going to be desktop only. I don't even think Playtech offered mobile uh, back then, or maybe just, just uh, true iOS. The other, the other thing that was really interesting back then was in 2013, Counter-Strike started their skin store, and that, that, that started this kind of cottage industry of skins betting, where people started betting for skins on, uh, online. And, and the games that they were playing on were games like the, the equivalent today of crash games, of dice games, 
And in around the same time and linked to it, you saw the emergence of, of the likes of Satoshi Dice or Prime Dice. And the, the point I was making to the board at the time is these customers, the, the most common game at the time was a 14 number roulette, right, which has like a, a 7% hold margin on it. And it's like, here's a group of customers who've never played in a land-based casino before, who are completely unaware as, like, no, no customer, like the big talk out of Vegas this year was how everything switched from Blackjack Play Streets 2, right, the sensitivity to margin, whereas here you had a huge cohort of players playing 14 number roulette uh, and just received a different education as to gambling. And they, they, the question I was asking at the time was, what happens when these people grow up, these digital natives who've grown up through video gaming, grown up through streaming, uh, familiar with uh, Bitcoin, you know, what does that look like in 2020? And I think the bit that I didn't see is how it all came together because Prime Dice went on to become Stake.com, or it was the genesis of Stake.com, which is now the largest gambling industry in the world. And then you see the bleed over of video into streaming and like the, let's say, the highest growing, fastest growing uh, streaming platform is now owned by are partially backed by a gambling company. So, so all those trends have come together, right? And I think the, what you have is a, a new generation of gamblers that are very different to the generation of gamblers that existed back then, you know? Right, right, right. We can call you Mr. Gavin from, uh, from yeah. here on. Uh, right. Great predictions back in, uh, back in those days, for sure. Also, Gavin, I mean, you've been in the industry for a long time, but not only have you been working in many different interesting organizations, but you've also been a part of some really big uh, mergers and acquisitions uh, throughout your career. You mentioned Paddy Power, obviously merging with Betfair, uh, the acquisition of uh, your own company, Red Tiger, by Netant, and then Netant being uh, acquired by Evolution. Um, some of these mergers and acquisitions have been more turbulent than others, let's say, but what have you learned through going through these uh, massive mergers and acquisitions uh, in your what career? Have learned? Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting thing, I think, um, the, the challenging part, if I take the Paddy Power and Betfair and Evolution and NetM when two public companies merge, is that period of uncertainty between the deal announcement and the closing. Uh, because I think everyone sits there and tries to opine what they're going to do, rumors start to spread, uncertainty, you can't make any decisions, yeah. right? Like, actually, funnily enough, today in 2020, was when the Evolution deal was announced. So, and I remember it because it was yeah. my birthday. Uh, and uh, I remember, yeah, thanks. And I remember sitting there actually, I, I wasn't involved in the, in the deal. So I only became aware of it on the, on the day before it was announced. And I was sitting on the phone, I got a phone call from Therese Hillman. And she goes, I have some news for you. And I was like, okay. And she goes, uh, Ned and Dabrina acquired by Evolution. And next of all, about 20 people came around the corner. Happy birthday, with a big cake. <laughs> <laughs> and I remember looking at, uh, at Nick Woodchip oh and the guy was just yeah. going, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no celebration. So, uh, yeah, but, but, but the challenging part for, between that is the same happened in Paddy Power. But a lot of speculation, a lot of uncertainty over people's jobs. You lose a lot of good people because the good people kind of see the writing on the wall and they kind of go, I want to try something different. Yeah. So trying to keep everything stable. Uh, and it's, it's an impossible thing to manage. And I think that, that uncertainty is, 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 is a really challenging part. And then trying to manage the period post-acquisition when the plans are put into place. Um, what, what, what you do learn very quickly is, no matter how well prepared, and I'd say on the Evolution deal, for example, they're incredibly well prepared. They put a lot of thought into how they're going to execute their plan. But as soon as it happens, all the plans are worthless. Like, it's kind right. of like, uh, I, I was thinking about it, like it reminds you of the, 
that Putin invading Ukraine, you know, it's like, I thought they'd be welcoming us with flowers, you know, suddenly they walk in saying, yeah. we've all these plans, and most people are like, I don't care about your plans, you know, yeah, we're yeah, doing it's it, so. Like uh, Mike Tyson, uh, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, like everyone yeah. has a plan, I guess, uh, until they get punched in the face. Exactly, right? so, uh, <laughs> so, so I think that that's a really, and you learn very quickly that managers who are technically competent have a very good view of how to, how to, let's say, run their functions, it's very difficult to gain experience into massive restructurings or massive reorganizations, and and that has a big people impact, and that, that really slows things down, you know? Yeah. yeah. So as you say here, the, in every merger acquisition, there's a plan, right? I remember I went through the Betson and Betsafe merger back in 2011, uh, which was super chaotic. Uh, but uh, th they made a commitment very early that we're not going to let anyone go. So like they safeguarded it. So everyone felt safe kind of from the beginning. But that was certainly not the case in the NetEnt and Evolution merger, for example. A lot of controversy, a lot of people on the NetEnt side being let go under uh, some uh, quite interesting uh, circumstances. Um, like you were obviously on the NetEnt side at that time. Uh, like how turbulent was it really? Because uh, there's a lot of reports on this, but we haven't really heard like the inside from the inside uh, how that uh, period went on. Yeah, uh, yeah, it was certainly a stressful week, uh, as you can imagine, right before Christmas as well. So uh, it was yep. it was absolutely chaotic. But if I stand back from it now and I, I kind of reflect on it, there's not, a, there's not a lot of decision. There's no right way to do that. Like, so obviously Evolution couldn't control the timetable, right? They didn't say it would be great if you could complete just before Christmas so we could really ruin it for yeah. people, you know? It's like, it was COVID, uh, yeah, it was Christmas. Uh, so, yeah. exa exactly, right? So then you go into it and you say, well, what's the right thing to do? Do you wait? Go home, have your Christmas yeah. break. When you come back, we'll and announce it. Yeah. So, mm. so th th there's no there's no easy way to do it. And and I think uh, the idea was was to give people as much certainty as possible, um, so that there, to to remove that uncertainty that lingered over the business. Uh, and the the challenge when you try to do that is you probably go a bit too far uh, because you you don't have all the information. Um, but but I could could they have handled it better? I think that comes down to individual managers. Some managers handled it really well. I think if you go through the various functions, some people will say it was a really good experience. Some people will say it was handled really badly, right? And, uh, but do I, do I think fundamentally um, they could have done it better? Yeah, around the edges, yeah. But like, it, it was just a challenging situation to be in, you know? Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, so taking a step back, obviously you were the CEO and one of the founding partners of, of Red Tiger. Um, you know, you made the exit there. It was a huge exit to uh, to uh, NetEnt at that time. Um, there was rumors as well that there was like a fight between NetEnt and Evolution, who was going to acquire you at that time. Was that actually the case as well? Was there like kind of, were they like outbidding each other, or what happened? What happened? Yeah, there? yeah, well, yeah. All I can say it was a competitive process. <laughs> uh, I think was, at, yeah. at the end you were of popular. It, you were a popular kid. At, on the, yeah. On the at the end of it, uh, I wasn't too popular. Evolution, which made it very amusing when, uh, right. when they, they realized when well, NetEnt acquired <laughs> you, they realized that the, the fight is over. They have to acquire NetEnt. <laughs> it, now, made, it made our first conversation very awkward. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great stuff. And, I mean, how does an exit like that change your life or perspective of life? Because, you know, you're on the way up, like you're, you're building your company and you're kind of uh, building towards something, towards a big plan. And when you make an exit, all of a sudden, you know, all the opportunities in the world opens up to just kind of sail into the sunset. Is it possible um, after making an exit to keep the same drive and motivation, do you think? Because we see this often, that like there's acquisitions and then kind of like product gets a little bit not Yeah, uh, I, I tell you what will uh, re-motivate you sitting in an evolution management meeting with the likes of Sebastian and you kind of yeah, go, yeah, I right. haven't made it yet. But uh, <laughs> no, I think 
I think the, the from a certainly from a Red Tiger perspective, you know, ideally, I, I would have liked to have gone on for longer. Uh, you know, I, w I wouldn't have personally. I w it was obviously a decision across all the shareholders, but uh, I, I felt oh, at the time we were basically still neck and neck with pragmatic growth, and we were still on a huge growth curve, and I think we had a lot more to go. Uh, but then when the business sold, I thought the, the net end Red Tiger combined project was very interesting, and I managed to get quite excited about what we could do together as a group, and we had a couple of very you know quick wins, and there was momentum there. And then when the evolution thing happens, that's, that's when you start to go, okay, well, now it's a different plan, and, and it certainly got hard, and maybe that was part of the the decision why you know I decided to leave Evolution uh, after only a year. I, I really liked my time in Evolution. I was interested in being exposed to the the live dealer product, but I think you know when you go through a couple of them, it's hard to remotivate yourself and say because then you're ultimately at that stage you're executing someone else's plan, and it's it's harder yeah, to be yeah. excited about it. You know. So you went on. To, so you, you, I saw you made a joke at some point that uh, you're the only person to have left Evolution with a lower share price than when you started. Yeah, it's quite the achievement. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what an achievement! I mean, that's, uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it was. Uh, but obviously, the expectation that was baked into the share price when we completed, I think the the share price. Uh, when the deal was announced, so this day was 673 sec, uh, and then it went up to 1600 in the space of yep. uh, eight months, and that was like price to perfection. That was like right. you know that you we, could, right. we yeah. couldn't, yeah. And then you're kind of looking at that going, there's a lot of hard work before we get there. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think there was a dose of realism kind of uh, arrived just around the time <laughs> that I decided to leave, you know, because it was a it was a you had a like a business like Red Tiger, which had a very well invested tech platform. Um, but didn't have the distribution or the market reach that NetEnt would have had. You had NetEnt's platform, which wasn't, you know, it was a poor platform and was kind of acknowledged internally, but had the distribution, had the market reach. And then you had Evolution's platform, which was a live platform with the distribution to reach, but wasn't catered for slots. Trying to get that into something coherent, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a big project. It's not a small project, you know, and I think uh, yeah, they're still suffering from the hangover of that today, you know. Right. Uh, so. Now in 2023, I mean, we look at the evolution and um, the live casino department is obviously doing extremely well, has always been accelerating um, for many, many years. And evolution obviously is trying to grow the RNG segment as their kind of second vertical in the, in the business. But in the last quarterly report, um, the RNG business of evolution actually reported a decline in revenue. Um, so like with the proliferation in, on the slot side in the industry, now with um, AI tools like Midjourney and so on and so forth that can kind of much, that democratizes kind of um, the production of slot machines to, to some extent. There's tens of thousands of games, hundreds of game studios. Um, is there any way do you think that Evolution will be able to kind of turn the ship around on the RNG segment and actually start growing in double digits as their, um, as their goals are? And like, how would they do that in such a difficult space? Yeah, it's, it's certainly a much, much more challenging uh, slots market than it was when we started in Red Tiger. Like, I, I think I was looking at the numbers recently, and this year alone, 20% 20, 20 of all the slots ever made will get made this year alone, right? right. So it's like yeah. the number of games being made has just increased significantly. Yeah. So the barriers to entry have uh, decreased substantially. It's it's much cheaper to spin up an RGS. It's much cheaper to integrate an RGS. So, um so, so competition is, 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 is much, much wider. Um, the cost of producing a game has come down significantly. Uh, but at the same time, the market has never been as consolidated. Like, so, you know, Pragmatic are 50, 60% of some people's uh, P&Ls. 
if you yeah. take the top three, it's probably 70-80%. Um, so on one hand, you have more and more prov providers competing for the operator space, but on the other hand, a significant chunk of that is, is taken up by, by the, the top three. Um, I, I think, do I believe evolution can be successful in RNG? Well, I think the reality is, do I, the, the kind of question is, do I believe Todd and his team have run out of ideas? And I don't think that's true. I think yeah. Nick Robinson just forgot how to make slot machine games. No, I don't think it's true. So, so fundamentally, I think what they have is an indigestion problem at the moment of, of a, t a technical overhead, which, which I think they'll figure to solve. But, but having said that, even the way slot games work today is very different than when we started. Like even the terminology that's used to describe slots, words have completely... When we used to talk about volatile games back in you know, 2014, 2015, had a very, very different meaning to what a volatile slot means today. Um, now you have such a significant proportion of the revenue coming through, people bypassing the base game and playing it in the, in the true bonus buys and playing it in the bonus round, that that is the, the primary enjoyment mechanism for many players. And even within that, there's a volatility spectrum, right? So, so it's like, they, they, and it, all of this has been shaped by the fact that streamers have a big influence on how games are played, the, the, the players, as I said, have come from a, not from a land-based environment where there's certain physical constraints around how machines work. So I think the uh, slots have become more complicated. Uh, it, it, it's just a much, much more different yeah. and complex uh, environment than I'd say it was back in 2014, 2015. Yeah. Like if I go back to 2011, when I first acquired, I started in the M&A team in Paddy Power and we acquired a slot studio called Caetano. And we acquired them because at the time we only had 10 slot machine games on mobile, right? So the idea was, imagine if you could get more than 10 slot machine games on mobile. No one even talks about mobile anymore, you know, it's kind of just done, right? Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that's how, how different the landscape. Back then, just having a game on a mobile made you money. You we're, we're in the right time at the right place. Would, uh, would you have succeeded where we're at yeah, today? I, 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 like, I, I do believe that, let's say, my generation, whatever <laughs> way, way you want to phrase that, we we are the the road the wave of the mobile penetration into casino and this 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 has driven a lot of success uh, for a lot of people. I think we're probably, as I said, that 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 is is, is done now. Um, and I think there's a, a different audience, a different universe of players. And I think the way games will evolve over the next five years is going to be very different to the traditional slot machine games than that yeah. than we've been used to. So we have hundreds of game studios today. Uh, what will happen in this environment? I mean, can, can they survive, do you think? Uh, I, don't think I, I, don't, I don't think all of them will survive, certainly uh, not. I think we saw a Green Dead game go, going on there a couple of months ago, for example. And yeah, and, and I think you'll see more of that. Uh, and I think you'll, uh, you're also competing against a lot of the um, big operators taking studios in houses, like you saw yeah. Leo with Push and obviously Kindred with Relax. And, you know, most of the big tier one operators have in-house studios uh, at the moment. So, so, so the, just the, the absolute amount of GGR to compete for is much lower. Um, so I, I, I don't think it is sustainable that we'll have the same number. But having said that, because the barriers to entry are low, you'll always have small studios of, you know, eight to 10 people spinning up, being able to do a few games. Just the ability to crack into that you know, let's say that that level where you're above five percent market share—that's much much harder than than I think it was perhaps back uh, when we started Red Tiger. So, so looking forward now, Gavin. Um, you started Willow Park Capital. 
uh, investment firm and you, you've invested in a, a number of companies. And what I find interesting when I speak to uh, a lot of the employees within these companies is that they are, it's like the Gavin Hamilton have shined like the Batman symbol in the sky and called back the old guard to come back and like kind of start the next generation companies here. They, you have like, you have like an incredible loyal base of employees that uh, when you pick up the phone, you know, yeah. they answer kind of thing. I'm is sure. that a, a I, I, conscious yeah. strategy to kind of poach back a lot of the old guard? I'm sure their version is very different. I think it's me following <laughs> them around saying, can I give you money? Uh, yeah, exactly. So, so I, I think it, it kind of happened more organically than that insofar as a lot of people went through a similar journey. And then because of the changes, and, and this will happen now as we see more consolidation, just that uh, the, the nature of these things is people get freed up from roles, you know, really good people and they're left standing there and, and, and they have ideas and uh, so, so I think I was lucky in my own timing and so far that, that uh, there was a lot of good people that had, let's say, come unstuck from roles who were looking to do things that, uh, that you know, I'd managed to, to, to back a couple of them who, who were doing quite well. So I think it's, 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 an, it's a, like with all, with all these things, with a lot of the businesses that you get involved in, it's so much of it is backing the team. And when you work with them, you, you, yep. it's very easy to assess. Um, you know, have their strengths and their weaknesses and where you'll be able to help, you know. So I think it's as much that when you've worked together, it's a much easier to de-risk an investment going, I know exactly how this person will work and I know how I can help, you know. Right. And so you're involved in a number of different companies here. Is there like a conscious uh, strategy that you have in mind when you build your portfolio of companies? So I'll give you an example, like YOLO Group, our lead investor in Agrimenex, they are purposely building like a self-sustaining ecosystem that's supposed to help each other and so on and so forth. And is that something you aspire to as well, or are you looking more at individual opportunities and how they fit into your vision for the future? Yeah, I, I'd say it's more the latter. I'd say it's more thematic than... Uh, having said that, the industry is still relatively small enough that there's going to yeah. be overlaps, right? So, so, And there is expertise and knowledge shared between the various companies, but I think a lot of it has been driven by... Uh, like uh, we, we spoke about this before, but it's kind of like placing chips on the roulette table going, this, this is where I think the next, you know, the, the next opportunity is. And, and uh, that, that, that's how we've approached it rather than saying, you know, here's synergies between the specific portfolio companies. A lot, they're, they're all fairly standalone, you know? Yeah, fair enough. And the last question for you, for you today, uh, Gavin. So we started off by talking about the predictions that you made in 2015. We established here that uh, you, you have some mystic capabilities here. So naturally, <laughs> You know, we would like to hear your five predictions for 2027. What is the industry going to look like at that time? What are the trends that are driving the industry and how will that affect us in 2027? Yeah, I've, I've probably touched on some of it throughout the conversation insofar as like, I still think we haven't, the, this shift towards video and mobile hasn't played out from a video perspective. Like uh, I, I do believe what, what is hugely different, I remember being in, on the M&A team and Paddy's and we would never invest in anything. We, we launched BetDash back in 2010, I think, and it was a social betting app, and it never went anywhere, kind of utilizing the Facebook um, tools. But, but at the time, we had this mantra that social will never work because betting is a very you know, individualist, individualistic uh, thing. But actually, I think that's fundamentally changed. Like, you see people sharing wins, you see big win feeds on, on the uh, kind of popular casinos now, you see... Um, they dabbled the, the business that was backed by Tapcor in Australia, which is a social betting app. Like, so I think the new generation of punters is getting far more comfortable with the social aspect of gambling and, and, and the casual aspect of it. And I think that there's still lots more interesting opportunities, like some of the things that 
beyond player live spins, whatever doing that. that right. I think that's quite quite an interesting space, and I think we'll see some very interesting things uh, evolve around uh, around that side. I think the the second piece. Obviously, everyone talks about AI uh, at the moment. I, I I'm very skeptical that we'll see any material benefits from it in the next five years. As in, oh, uh, I'll take. I I I I don't like. I think. From my perspective, there will definitely be operational efficiencies. Um, that that that's inevitable. Uh, marginal. Yeah, yeah, and pro yeah. No, possibly like significant operational efficiencies, but not to the extent where it upends the industry. And um, right. there's things I see. You know, I was talking to a studio actually, a game studio recently, who kind of invested heavily in the idea of being able to use AI to for for art and design. Right. The reality is, art and design is only like 20% of the slots process. Right. So. Uh, and uh, but anyway, a lot of the work that they did, then Adobe came out and said, Here, "Here's this tool embedded in it, and it's now available to everyone." It's like, okay, well, we thought we had an edge, but now it's just you know anyone can do this. So um, so I think that is a long we I, it, that is a long way to go, and I don't think I think what will be more interesting on the let's say the AI side is that private data is going to become much more important, right? So I think owning data for data's sake. Um, is going to be much more important because as as the models get smarter and you can train them on your own data, that that's where it will start to unlock some interesting product opportunities. So I, we have an investment with a, a very interesting sports data business, um, which which kind of is in this space. And I think that type of stuff uh, on on the data side is is going to be um, more interesting to as the infrastructure layer for what the models are capable of five years beyond that. Uh, and then because we're running out of time, I'll uh, say one more, which is um, I still think the the payment side of it is still fairly broken. Uh, you know, for, for casino, both regulated and non-regulated, it's still, um, you know, just generally payments is a, is a pain point. And I, I do think that we will start to see spillover benefits of some of the innovation on the, on the kind of crypto casino side uh, around payments. I think it's inevitable that that will start to happen in the regulated environment, right. and some of the moves in the last, you know, few weeks around crypto, I think, are setting the platform for that to become. Uh, and I think it will be amazing for the gambling industry, just because um, it just lends itself to one of the major pain points from from a gambling perspective. So. Right. Yeah. Tim Heath uh, predicted this the other day as well, yesterday here on stage, that uh, he thinks um, crypto will be become an accepted payment method in the U.S. in the regulated. Yeah, I think. I think it will. I think we're on that path. Uh, oh. It's it's inevitable, and I think it will be very good for the industry when, oh, yeah. when we get there. Brilliant. We came with question marks. We have explanation marks. Uh, thank you so much, Kevin. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're a legend of the industry. It's <laughs> great to sit down with you here today. Thank you so much. Thank you to the audience. Brilliant. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. That was great.